Let me uh, begin this morning with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to hear it preached week by week. Father, we pray that as we open up the text this morning, that we will, by your grace, understand it and apply it to our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, our passage this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I asked Micah if there's anything specific he'd like me to address, and he said, just not the Gospels, because he's been going through that for uh, probably years. I don't know when he started. <laughs> so we're looking at this little book, 2 Timothy, this morning, that was written to a faithful trainee of Paul's, Timothy. And it's the second letter that he has written to him. The first was to give Timothy some direction in his ministry as a pastor. And it's still a treasured book for pastors today. These are, these, this little section in the epistles are considered the pastoral epistles and 1 Timothy is part of that. His second letter to Timothy, though, is more direct. It's not as general. And make no mistake, Paul chose Timothy because he was strong, yet for his ministry in Ephesus where he's ministering, he needed strengthening. Paul figured that Timothy was the right man for the ministry in this church, yet he needed a little help at this point of time in his ministry. Now let me draw an illustration here. Steel is a very strong material used in constructing buildings and bridges. We're all familiar with it. And yet it begins as iron. Once iron is made into steel, it is stronger than mere iron. But even ordinary steel can be made stronger and harder so that it will bear even more weight. And they make it stronger by following a few steps. They add carbon to steel, and then they treat it with very, very high heat. Then they cool it down quickly, and finally, they temper it. And the end result is that steel that began strong is now even stronger. And that's what, that is what Paul is doing here with Timothy. He is giving him the ingredients and the process to get stronger. So let's look in this passage and see how he does it this morning. So our first point is the command to be strengthened and in this section, there's two different points. One of them is strengthened by grace. So first, notice the affectionate way that he frames these comments, and that is my child. In fact, let me read these seven verses to you as we get started. Chapter, 2 Timothy 2, verse one. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So going back to verse one, we see where Paul begins, you then, my child. In what sense was Timothy his child? He wasn't his biological father. He was not his spiritual father in the sense that he led him to God. Turn to Acts chapter 16 just for a moment. The first three verses of Acts 16 show us this encounter between Paul and Timothy, where Paul meets him. Uh, 16.1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew his father was a Greek. So Timothy was already well spoken of. He had already been given a spiritual heritage from his mother's side. And so Paul enters his life at this point and he gave him more accurate instruction concerning Christ. So he was a father in the sense that Paul took him in and provided what a father should give. That is care, protection, nourishment, and guidance. He became a constant companion of Paul's and then at a certain point, Paul would assign him to certain places. So Timothy was a trusted um, protege of Paul's. If you look in, uh, 1 Timothy, so going back to uh, the Timothys again, let me go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Paul here also addresses Timothy, my true child in the faith. So this verbiage, or using this word as a child of Timothy, he was a grown man, young man, but he was grown, showed how much Paul cared for him and worked for Timothy's spiritual success. He wanted him to be successful spiritually, a successful ministry minister. So Paul gives this command to one he loves, and Timothy would have been assured of this with his reading, my child. Remember, this was originally a letter to Timothy. So Paul begins this chapter of 2 Timothy 2, with the command to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He was to be strengthened. He tells Timothy that he needs to be stronger. We assume that Timothy isn't offended by this. Paul is his caring for him like a father. But this command doesn't come out of nowhere. If we look to 2 Timothy chapter 1, you can see how this is the occasion. This is the reason that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. It seems that Timothy is not as bold in his ministry 
as he needed to be. And he faced some challenge, challenges where he is ministers. It's not that he is weak or that he's been a failure, but that he needed some encouragement to grow stronger. The evidence is found throughout the letter, but here are the primary markers in chapter one. So look in verse five, first, 2 Timothy 1.5. He reminds Timothy of his spiritual heritage that had come through his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. They're actually named there. Pretty unique thing in scripture to see such close identification, whom Paul knew because Paul met him at his, Timothy's house. So this is a rare gift bestowed upon Timothy, this spiritual heritage coming not only from his mom, but his grandmother as well. So it wasn't as though he was a first generation God-fearer. He had learned from his, mo his mother and his grandmother. And then in verse six, Paul connects his next statement with his spiritual heritage. He says, for this reason, and he tells him to fan into flame the gift of God. Picture a fire that's smoking, it's got heat, but there's no flame. What does it need to get hot? Well, it needs someone in a physical sense to fan it or blow oxygen into it and then add more fuel to the fire. Paul doesn't doubt, and notice this, Paul doesn't doubt that there are hot coals inside of Timothy. He just wants him to get hot again. And then in verse seven, once again, Paul connects to the next phrase with a previous verse. He says, for. And this verse is probably one we've all underlined in our Bibles because it's such a clear promise and command. Paul says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is a precious verse that we have in the scripture. I guess we could say, thankfully, Timothy wasn't as strong as he needed to be. And so that we could have this verse today. But God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So Timothy should fan his faith into full flame because the Holy Spirit was working in him to stir these things up. And then in verse eight, the last evidence I'll give here, though there are more, is the next verse where Paul challenges Timothy to not be ashamed of our Lord or of Paul and instead to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Notice it begins with therefore as Paul links to the previous verse. So Paul builds his case verse by verse and from this picture we get that Timothy was apparently shying away from the risk of suffering and actually demonstrating feelings of shame that Paul needed to confront him on. So Paul writes this little letter to help Timothy engage in this spiritual battle that he can't escape as a minister of Jesus Christ. He does this to fight his own fears and to advance the gospel by the power of God. He's gonna need to be stronger to do this. 
And that brings us to our passage where Paul's first instruction is to be strengthened or be strong. This is not a mere pep talk by a football coach that gives his team before the game. It's not merely emotion. He's not telling him to swallow his fears and fight on. He's to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul saying with this? He's commanding him, Timothy, to be strong, but not in his own strength. That's what's interesting about this. God's grace is his strength. This is the first ingredient that Timothy needs to add to his steel. But think about it for a moment. This is a passive addition. It's not an active addition. You would expect something like read more of the word, memorize more verses, go to church more. You'd expect something very active for him to do. Instead, Paul gives him something that's very passive. Be strengthened in the grace that he had already been given. To see this grace, again, look back at chapter one in verses eight and nine. We've already read eight. So continuing on in verse nine, speaking about the gospel being the power of God, look what Paul wrote. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the age began. So grace in verse chapter one, verse nine, and grace in chapter two, verse one. Notice all that's been done for the believer, and this isn't new to believers. He saved us, he called us to a holy calling, he specifically mentioned that it's not because of our works. And the contrast to our works is his own power and grace, purpose and grace. And of course, this was given to us before the age began. So Paul in chapter two, verse one, didn't need to rehearse this again. He just gave it in chapter one. But he refers back to them. Brothers and sisters, we should all be strengthened by remembering our salvation that came by grace. You don't need to work harder. You didn't work for your salvation, so you don't need to work harder now to grow. You need to depend more faithfully. You didn't get to where you are by stealing yourself. You got here by God's grace and you will grow stronger only by relying on that grace. And that's what he's reminding Timothy of here. But follow along. There's much more here on how to grow stronger. So we also need to be strengthened by teaching. Now, chap, uh, chapter two, verse two, is connected to verse one by the simple and plain word, and. So Paul is continuing the thought, he started in verse one, but he goes in an unexpected direction with it. It's not what we would think that he'd say. He writes in verse two, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
Now, honestly, this is the verse that attracted me to preaching this this morning because it's such a strong verse on the importance of teaching the word to faithful men. But what is the connection between teaching and being strengthened? Well, what happens when we teach? Some of you know this very well. Some of you who are used to that maybe need to help be, uh, I can help think through that because at minimum, we study the word of God. So Paul's trying to strengthen Timothy and he does that by driving him into the word, by teaching. Uh, the more often, the more godly teacher teaches what's dear to his heart. Uh, or the expository teacher, he opens the next verse and wants and is anxious to open the next verse each week. So as a person teaches, they are reminded what drew them to Christ in the first place and the deeper truths they know. And they're strengthened by that. Now, I want you to notice that in this little verse, there are four generations of believers, just stated so simply, so clearly though. It was Paul to Timothy to faithful men who teach others. Boom, 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 boom. Four generations just like that that would receive this teaching of the word. And the implication is that teaching will go on from generation to generation and will expand widely. But beginning with Paul, the four generations are identified. This was how the church grew so fast in the first century. It wasn't one person teaching another person, teaching another person, teaching another person. That's adding. This was multiplying. It was a person teaching a person who taught people who taught people. And it just exploded throughout the Mediterranean region and eventually around the world. So it's adding growth, it's multiplying growth, not adding growth. So Paul says to teach what they have heard from him in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's teaching is a theme in 1st and 2nd Timothy. Turn back to 1st Timothy 1.10, just for a moment. We're just gonna look at this for a moment. I want you to see these phrases that Paul uses. In 1.10, Paul says at the end of the verse, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He's, he's saying what isn't right and what is not in alignment with sound doctrine. Look in chap, uh, 1 Timothy 4 verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine you have followed. Again, in chapter six, verse three, same little letter. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Timothy, Verse chapter one, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So this is a theme. Paul wants Timothy to think about sound doctrine, good doctrine, sound words, sound words. Those are the phrases that Paul uses. 
So this teaching is not merely the gospel. It includes it, but Paul's talking about doctrine. He's talking, he's referring to carefully expositing the word of God, comparing scripture with scripture, teaching the whole counsel of God. It is in-depth teaching of the Bible. Paul had taught the word of God, not just to Timothy, but in the presence of witnesses. So Paul is referring to the many sermons and lessons that he had taught Timothy, going back to when they first met in Acts chapter 16. How many was this? We have no idea. It's innumerable. How many times had they interacted on the word of God or Paul taught groups of people? Many of these lessons would have been one-on-one, but many would have been with brothers and sisters and in crowds, such as Acts 20, verse 4. But these truths were to be entrusted to faithful men. This This is a key word here. It isn't just teach them. It's to be entrusted. There's a value here that Paul is communicating. It's including the idea of protecting something that is precious. In the year uh, 1216, King John was running for his life, something that he did quite frequently, actually. And he was fleeing with his army and his baggage train. So all his possessions were together, or his valuable possessions were in his baggage train, which included the crown jewels that he was charged to protect. He was entrusted with these valuables valuables to protect them, and they were beyond price. The problem was, in his fleeing, that was that the shortest route to his destination was over something called the wash. We would call it an estuary. And in his haste, he tried a well-known shortcut right over the, and through the wash, not around it. And it, again, it was well-known. It was a sandy path. So he and his entourage got partway across when the tide came rushing in. And so all his stuff was flooded and washed away. King John himself barely made it out with his life. And so the treasure was lost. In contrast today, if you go to see the crown jewels at the Tower of London, different from the ones that King John lost because they're still lost, they were never found. Today you enter a vault with a door that's about a yard thick and weighs two tons they are faithfully entrusted to the current king so that they won't be lost. Now we naturally connect with saving physical possessions like jewels. That's not hard for us to understand, but Paul is speaking about the value of eternal truth, of entrusting this valuable truth, the truth of the scriptures. And we're so accustomed to having our Bibles that we don't fear losing the truth. But having a Bible is not the same thing as treasuring the truth. Anybody can have a Bible. You can go to your Mattel room 
and find a Bible, but that doesn't mean it's treasured. And so Paul is communicating that this is to be entrusted to others. Paul uses this same word again in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy in verse 12 to 14, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced he's able to guard it until that day. What has been entrusted to me? He uses the same expression. In verse 13, then he passes that on to Timothy. And then he tells Timothy to guard it by the Holy Spirit. Notice how precious it is to Paul. He is confident that Christ is able to guard the deposit until the day or the end times, the day of the Lord. But it's valuable. It's truth to be protected. And this truth is to be entrusted to whom? Faithful men. As you would expect with such precious cargo as the treasure of God's word, only certain people are worthy to be, have it handed over to them. Paul calls those who are worthy faithful. So let's look at what the New Testament says about this term, faithful. First of all, God is faithful. Just a few verses earlier in 2 Timothy, a few verses later, 2 Timothy 2.13, also in 1 Corinthians 10.13, and in 2 Corinthians 1.18, we see that God is faithful. That's what the Bible says that God is. He is faithful. And yet here Paul is saying, hand it off to faithful men. So this faithfulness is one of God's attributes that we can learn. It's called a communicable attribute of God. It's a high standard. It is something that is not easy. But Paul is saying that those who are entrusted with this message need to reflect God's character, specifically his faithfulness. Second, regarding faithful men, those in the New Testament who were called faithful are some of the greatest Christians in history. Moses is called faithful in Hebrews 3, 5. Paul is called faithful in 1 Timothy 1, 12. Tychicus in Ephesians 6, 21 and Colossians 1, 7. Epaphras, Colossians 1, 7. And Onesimus in Colossians 4, 9. And thirdly, this word faithful is closely connected to the word believing. In fact, whether this word means faithful or believing depends on the context. You can come across that word and it just depends on what the context is. For example, in 1 Timothy 4.10, 4.12, 5.16 and 6.2, they all use the same Greek word but it's translated in those verses as believe. And so, faithful men are those who are believers, who are steady in their faith and character, and who reflect the faithfulness of God. Boy, that's a high standard for anybody. 
and yet not impossible. Otherwise, it wouldn't be out there for us to become faithful. It's to be an aspiration for everybody. It's expected of believers to be faithful. There are a few important principles here as we apply this to ourselves in our church. Not all faithful men are gifted with teaching. That's very important to note. Not all faithful men are gifted with teaching. The church needs faithful men with a variety of gifts. The previous description of faithful men does not only apply to teachers. Therefore, we all should aspire to faithfulness. Paul, however, is directing Timothy to find faithful men who can teach, faithful men who also know and treasure the truth and will be worthy of entrustment to them. Some men may be faithful, but not treasure the word of God the way others do. So there's careful distinctions in here. And one more is that Timothy is to entrust the truth to those who teach, but also who are inclined to teach others. There are some who may be gifted at teaching, but have no motivation to teach. So these things all have to be there, and they are the ones that Paul is to hand this off to. It's also important to note to have faithful women who are able to teach other women. Paul highlights this in 1 Timothy 3.11 when he's talking about women who are deacons. And so this isn't exclusively for men, but for those who teach in the church it is. But it's so important that we have faithful women who are teaching as well. And this is a perfect place to highlight our training center as there are 20 something people missing from our uh, worship service this morning because they are doing part of their training this morning. I'm in the TC prep class this year and the first week we were all asked, why are we there? Why are we in the training center prep class. And to a, to a man, everybody said in their own way, I want to be a more faithful man. And so that's so encouraging. The, the group that's over on their uh, trip to Arizona this morning, they're in the third year. They've gone through all this training and it's all kind of coming together here. Well, they'll have a graduation in a few weeks. And they have learned much. Those who go through the TC program, they have to apply, they have to have their wife's support, and then to demonstrate their faithfulness weekly. It's hard work. It's hard work. They're not just taught to teach because not all are gifted to teach, even those in training center, but they're all trained and equipped to minister in one way or the other. So this program is part of how FBC fulfills this passage. But is this happening anywhere else at FBC? Yes, it's happening all over the place. In homes, between husbands and wives, parents and children, in Sunday school, and in Awana. 
There's formal education at home with homeschools or co-ops. There's uh, Foothill Christian Academy. There's equipping hour on Sunday morning. There's small groups. It's happening everywhere, teaching other people. And it's important that we all see our role in this verse, not necessarily people who stand up and teach. This is a ministerial charge to Timothy as a minister, and it applies directly to every church and every pastor. And so we shouldn't miss this. This is the standard of accountability that all pastors should be held to. That is, entrusting the word to other believers. However, it's also a charge to all believers to teach the scriptures to those under our care and in our sphere. John MacArthur writes this, every Christian has such a responsibility for any brother or sister in Christ whom he has opportunity to disciple, even briefly. In a still wider sense, every believer has a responsibility to teach God's truth to any other believer, even one who is older and more mature in the faith. Pastors can learn from other church members, parents can learn from their children, Teachers can learn from their students. Wives can learn from their husbands. Husbands can learn from their wives. And friends can learn from their friends. And so teaching the word, entrusting it to faithful men is vital. But it also, in a sense, applies to every one of us. Second of all, this morning, is the means to be strengthened. This is in verses 3 to 6. So Paul is in the process of guiding Timothy to being a stronger minister. And these next four verses give him specific practices that will make him more able to complete his ministry and calling. He uses three images for this specific purpose, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. By themselves, these don't help Timothy. Uh, there are many different lessons that, that each one of these images could communicate and that represent. So Paul makes it a little clearer. And by the way, these are images that Paul uses in other passages. In 1 Corinthians 9, he refers to all three of these. In Ephesians chapter 6, he refers to the soldier and actually talks a lot about their, the believer's armor, the soldier's armor. Um, armor that he wears going into battle, and also in 1 Thessalonians 5. But here in 2 Timothy 2, we see, first of all, the soldier. And the soldier teaches Timothy that he should please the Lord. The athlete teaches him to follow the Lord and the farmer to work for the Lord. So let's look at the soldier first. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Because verses three and four begin with a reference to suffering, it gives the impression that suffering's the main point of verses three and four. But they're only one part of the life of a soldier. Instead, we must look to the end of verse four to get his point. He says that the soldier's aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The one who enlists a believer, of course, 
Is Christ our Savior and Lord? So Paul is saying that the soldier will do whatever it takes to please his commanding officer. That's how the military works. There's no deciding when you get a, an order from your commanding officer. You just obey in the military. Now, I admit to that thinking about our Lord as a commanding officer is not the com most common way of referring to Jesus. Yet, it's Paul here who writes a good soldier of Christ Jesus in verse 3. There are some here this morning who think of Christ as only someone to help you or as your rock to protect you or maybe an inspiration on how to live better. These are accurate. They're not wrong, but they're not enough. Christ is much more than that. A genuine follower of Christ forsakes self-reliance, confesses his sin, and trusts entirely on the grace of Christ, as we saw in verse 1. We must make Jesus Christ the one we will follow even when it goes against culture, even when it hurts, even when it's difficult. And we do it because he is our commanding officer. He is the one we have committed to follow. We'll come back to pleasing the commanding officer in just a moment, but first, let's consider their suffering aspect of the soldier. There is nothing that about the life of a soldier that is comfortable. It begins with boot camp, and it goes on with um, intense training. It goes on to carrying heavy backpacks on long hikes, and then endless drills. It just goes on and on. And that's before you get into battle or into a war. Once you're in the war, the soldier can expect to be deprived of all comforts, enduring harsh weather while living outside, including an up to severe injury and death. So suffering is not the same for every soldier, yet all can expect it. And Paul mentions suffering because it's usually part of a soldier's life. So what's the connection that Paul is making with the Christian? Well, it's obviously he's saying that Christians who are in the battle will experience suffering of some sort. And Paul summarizes his own suffering experiences in a couple of different passages. 2 Corinthians 6 uh, four and five, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And then in chapter 11, he gets more specific of 2 Corinthians. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, 
danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger uh, from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in in cold and exposure. And then in verse 33, he says, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. That's all kinds of suffering from Paul. It was intense. And it was showing that he led by example, not just by words. But, and this is emphasized in verse three also by the translation here. The ESV begins verse three with the word share. Some of you are looking at the NASB and it doesn't begin with the word share. It says, with me, suffer with me. And if you're reading the King James, it has nothing. It doesn't have either one of those. And the reason is the word that Paul uses here is a 13-letter word with an adverb attached to it that means suffer together. And that's why the ESV says share and the NASB says together with me, suffer with me. So in a sense, Paul is giving us, what Paul is giving us is that our suffering is part of our shared Christian experience. And enduring suffering will make Timothy stronger. That's what this point's about. While Christians in the United States have historically not had to suffer for their faith, it has happened. It's becoming more likely every day as the world gets more intolerant of what the Bible teaches. State it bluntly, they're coming for Christians because if we believe what the word of God teaches. If you're a Christian because it's safe, you'll have to make a choice. Now back to the soldier who works to please his commanding officer. This is one of the means that Paul uses to make Timothy stronger. He needs to add to his character wholehearted service to the Lord to please him. And he sets up a contrast between a soldier who gets entangled in civilian affairs versus the one who works to please his commanding officer. That's the contrast. Get entangled, not pay attention to the commanding officer or follow the commanding officer. So Paul is writing this letter to challenge Timothy. Paul thinks Timothy needs to follow this one holy passion of following Christ wholeheartedly. Timothy was dedicated, no doubt. But wholeheartedly, judging by Paul's comments here, it seems not as much as he should have been. He needed to fan into flame the gift that he had. Isaac Watch captured this in the last stanza of the hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross. He wrote, were the whole realm of nature mine, were that a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But that isn't all Timothy needed to get stronger. He needed to follow the rules. So the second one is the athlete, follow the Lord. An athlete 
Paul writes, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Is this hinting that Timothy was not, a, not following the rules? No, just like his dedication was good, but not wholehearted. He was following the rules mostly, but perhaps not as zealously as he ought. Again, Paul is not writing this because Timothy is doing so well, but because he's missing the mark a little. What does following the rules in this context mean? Well, Paul is recalling the Greek games that the Roman culture, the Roman citizens would have been well aware of. And so he's recalling these games. And he's not reminding them that athletes compete against other athletes. He's not reminding them that anything about their training or their qualifications. He's got one point. That is, Timothy, follow the rules. And what are the rules for Timothy? All that's included in the word of God. Those are, those are the rules he's to follow. He is to pursue the truth in the scriptures. These are the only words, the only rules that matter for the minister of God. In a sense, it's kind of an extension of the previous point, isn't it? Get serious, Timothy. He needs to wholeheartedly work to please the Lord, which includes knowing the word of God so that he can live and minister the way that God wants him to. If he's going to follow the Lord, he must know the scriptures and know them well. And this will make Timothy immeasurably stronger. And this is where many ministers go wrong today. They are seeking to be creative in their ministry instead of being faithful to the word of God. Oftentimes, pastors have guidelines that are about what pleases the people, not what pleases the Lord, which is what this passage is calling for. Sometimes their guidelines are to be popular. Sometimes they're simply seeking wealth through their ministry. They often don't even know what the word of God teaches. So they're not competing according to the rules God's rules. And then the third one for Timothy here is work for the Lord or be like the farmer. Verse six, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So the third image adds to the previous ones. Timothy was to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ to please him and he needed to serve Properly, by knowing the scriptures, now Paul challenges Timothy to follow the farmer who works hard. Timothy was already working, I'm sure he was, but the way that someone who is wholeheartedly devoted to Christ would work more. Now the image of a farmer is lost a little bit on us today. We, we have no trouble understanding soldiers. We have video games that glorify it. We see it in the news and entertainment. We have athletes all around us, so we know what's going on with them. But there's not much about farming. And what there is doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. And what Paul is calling up here about farming is the daily drudgery of getting up early when it's miserable and cold every day. It's not like today I can just relax. It's every day. Farming is hard. There's the seasonal battle with weeds. 
There's the isolation from others who may encourage him. He's just out there a lot of times by himself or the farmers are widely separated. There's the monotony of going back and forth, back and forth in the same field. I don't know if it's better or worse, but now they have GPS on their tractors and they don't even have to steer, but they still have to be in there back and forth. Monotonous. There's the discouraging battle with the elements. Never ends. There's not enough rain. Now there's too much rain. Now there's rain at the wrong time. Now there's too much sun. Now there's not enough sun. It just goes on and on. And all these hardships have nothing to motivate you except future harvests. And that's what Paul highlights. The farmer works hard. James Rebanks wrote in his book about farming the north, in the north of England, pastoral song. He says, the truth is, a farm swallows you up, takes everything you have, and then asks for more. Working like a farmer will make Timothy stronger. He needs to get up early and work late. He needed to fight the spiritual weeds that crop up in his garden, in his congregation. He needs to find fellowship with his Lord through the many hours of study and through the people he ministers to. He needed to continue the same task week after week, studying God's word, continue to battle the discouragement through the setbacks, all to keep his eye on the coming harvest. Finally, the promise of being strengthened. The harvest is what keeps the farmer going. The crown is what keeps the athlete following the rules. And the pleasure of the commanding officer is what keeps the soldier going even when suffering. In Timothy's case, these are all ingredients that will make him stronger. How will he know this? How will he apply what Paul has written? Well, verse seven, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In a matter of just a few words, Paul has given Timothy a massive challenge. What did it mean for Timothy to be a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer? How was he supposed to apply this to his life since Paul didn't exactly spell it out? Well, Paul says, think it over. This isn't a command, it's not a suggestion. He's not saying you might consider. Paul says, think about it, do it now. Timothy's read it, now he must think deeply about what he's read. Few things to see here. Paul is telling Timothy to do with his mind what a cow does with his cud. Chew it over, think about it. Timothy's mind needs to be deeply engaged with these truths. Sometimes we do this naturally, like when we've embarrassed ourselves, we can't get it out of our heads. Other times, it takes disciplined hard work, and that's what he's telling Timothy to do. Turn it over. Look at these things from different perspectives. Challenge your assumptions. Second, though this is an active project that Timothy's to do, notice that it isn't his brilliance that Paul is trying to engage. If Timothy is faithful to think, the Lord will give understanding. 
That's fascinating. Once again, we come up against God's work working together with man's work. Timothy's to think and God will illumine his mind. Not one or the other. When Timothy is faithful, God is faithful. We see this in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. Jesus made this same promise in his upper room discourse in both John 14, 26 and in 16, 23, uh, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Paul is recalling those words of Christ. And then thirdly, this verse ends with in everything. Timothy's understanding of this passage will be what he needs to know. It will be comprehensive. Isn't that a great promise to Timothy? You will know what you need to know when you meditate on this passage. Well, these are all the ingredients that Timothy needed to add in order to be strengthened. This whole little letter to Timothy is addressing this principle, but especially so in, second, um, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Well, it's been obvious throughout this passage that Paul is addressing Christians, those who have given their heart entirely to following Christ. If you can't say that about yourself, but God is prompting you to follow him, I encourage you to talk to either myself or Ivan, who's up here earlier, or a faithful believer who you know that can help lead you into this truth of trusting in Christ to be a believer and a faithful follower with him. As the musicians come out, bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can joyfully look in your word and apply it to our lives. <clears throat> Father, we know that what has been taught here in this passage to Timothy applies to us, applies to our church. And Father, we pray that we'd be able to faithfully, without compromise, understand your word, that we would seek to be faithful and that in our spheres of our influence that we would continue to teach, to be faithful to your word. And even as we look at your word and we see things we've never seen before, we pray for your grace in that. We pray in Christ's name, amen.